The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I think that the U.S. domestic situation today is deeply troubling uh, in a lot of respects. And I certainly am not as confident in the future of American democracy as I would like to be. I think, though, that one of the advantages of being a historian is it gives you a little bit of perspective on some of these contemporary debates. And so the U.S. domestic situation now isn't great. Is it worse than it was, say, in 1969, when there were several hundred bombings in the United States in the course of a single year? Is it worse than it was, you know, in the 1930s? I, I don't think the answer is is yes. I think we've faced real severe domestic challenges in the past. Is it worse than it was during sort of the peak of Joe McCarthy's influence in the early 1950s? That was a pretty ugly period as as well. And so one point I think that, that history reminds us of is that our troubles may be great, but they are not unprecedented. And there has been significant resilience in the American system before. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 19th, 2022. I sat down recently with Hal Brands, the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Professor Brands is the author of the new book, Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. He is also the author of a new article in Foreign Affairs, The Overstretched Superpower, which argues that the United States might have more rivals than it can handle. We covered a range of topics, including the origins of containment, the rise of Sovietology in academia, and what the Biden administration could learn from the Cold War. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 19th, Hal Brands on Lessons from the Cold War. Before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could talk about your career and your service in government. I believe you served at the Department of Defense and how that experience influenced your decision to write this book. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to, and thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. It's a good opportunity to, to talk. So I, I'm really an academic by trade. Uh, I knew from a relatively early age that researching and writing and teaching were really my passions. And so I took sort of a, a fairly traditional uh, academics path. I got a PhD in history and then uh, went on to teach in the public policy school at Duke before moving to Johns Hopkins, where I am today. But I guess what made me a little bit unusual for most academic historians is that uh, I always came at history from the perspective of thinking about what it might be able to teach us about contemporary policy challenges and, and having an interest in doing policy analysis and writing on policy issues at the same time that I was trying to produce interesting history. And so uh, even when I was in grad school, I did a little bit of uh, consulting work for the Department of Defense on issues pertaining to security in Latin America and things like that. Uh, and then when I, in 2015, I had the opportunity to go work for Ash Carter when he was the Secretary of Defense, as sort of an advisor for strategic planning to him. Uh, and it was interesting because it allowed me to uh, get sort of an inside look at a variety of issues from the war against ISIS to the U.S.-China competition uh, and it really made me curious about how I could sort of more directly marry up my academic training uh, as a Cold War historian, uh, it turns out, with my policy interests. And so I, I think you can see from there sort of where the idea from this book comes from. It was an effort to put 
together my academic background with, I think, the most important policy issue the United States faces today. So your sort of uh, impetus for applied history, I was wondering if you could talk about maybe some of the, the pros and cons of, of using applied history in policymaking. So I think history has always been used in policymaking, and I think it's used even when policymakers hardly realize that they are using it. And so we, we all have a personal history or we all have an understanding of history that shapes our approach to decision making, whether that's explicitly or implicitly. And so I think the idea behind applied history or, or the use of history in policy or whatever one wants to call it is simply that since history is omnipresent in the making of policy, let's try to make that use explicit and systematic and rigorous rather than superficial. And so I think the the need for that is particularly compelling when we think about the history of the Cold War. And so one of the arguments that I make in the book is that uh, we will use Cold War history uh, whether we mean to use it or not. The Cold War, after all, is really the only time uh, in America's history that it has faced a multi-decade competition against an authoritarian rival. Uh, And the Cold War is still within the living memory, even the adult memory, of a number of American policymakers, for President Joe Biden, for instance. And so the, the rationale for applied history is to look more deeply at the historical analogies and historical issues that we are likely to use one way or another and to try to do it well. Now, you know, as your question implies, there are some dangers or some pitfalls associated with using history in the service of policy analysis. I think the the most sort of common pitfall, or perhaps the one that most needs avoiding, is when you start out with a preferred policy recommendation or a preferred policy in mind, and then write the history such that it supports that policy recommendation. And that that's constantly a, a danger, and it has to be guarded against. But I think the best way of doing that is by going into a project like this with questions rather than than answers. And that's what I tried to do in this book. Let's let's start with the title of the book. And I was just wondering if you could define for our listeners, what what is a twilight struggle? So the term twilight struggle really came into the American consciousness, I think, with a speech that President Kennedy gave in 1961, in which that was what he basically called the Cold War. And I think the reason he did that is because the concept of twilight uh, expresses a situation that is neither one thing or another, right? It's it's not neither day nor night. And that was a fairly good metaphor for the Cold War. The Cold War, uh, it wasn't a hot war. I mean, there, there were hot wars that played an important role in the Cold War. The U.S. fought major wars in places like Korea and Vietnam, for instance, there were proxy wars points uh, around the globe at various times during the Cold War. But it wasn't a traditional great power war of the sort we had seen in World War One or World War II. At the same time, it certainly wasn't peace. Uh, it certainly wasn't peace as Americans had understood that term prior to the Cold War. There was really no respite from geopolitical competition during the Cold War, uh, you know, the troops never really came home after World War II. The United States forged alliances and it had military deployments in places like Germany and Japan sort of patrolling the, the front lines of the free world. There was never really a respite from diplomatic competition or ideological competition. And so the Cold War was certainly different from anything in the American experience prior to that. And so that's where I think the idea of the twilight struggle comes from. And I think it maps fairly well onto the competitions that the United States is engaged in today. So the primary strategy that the U.S. executed throughout the Cold War, which you describe in the book, was containment. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the origins of containment, particularly the people within the within the Truman administration, like George Kennan, that, I mean, George Kennan being the primary author of, of containment, first of all, but how did their personal experiences, which I think you draw out very well in the book, sort of shape their ideas of, of containment. So Kennan is kind of an ironic father of containment in the sense that he did more than anyone else to originate and to popularize the idea, but fairly quickly turned against it. Uh, and so by the 1970s and 1980s, he was far more likely to be a critic of American foreign policy, uh, including in the context of the Cold War, than a supporter 
of it. And I think the the background to Kennan's role in the formation of containment was really his experience studying the Soviet Union and working in the Soviet Union as an American diplomat. He was a foreign service officer for a couple of decades before he sort of became associated with the concept of containment in 1946-1947. And he uh, along with his good friend Chip Bolin and maybe one or two other foreign service officers had a claim to be America's foremost expert on the Soviet Union. And so you can see that expertise, uh, you can see Kennan's background in, in Soviet affairs come through in his famous writings on containment. And so there was the long telegram, which was basically a diplomatic message sent from the embassy in Moscow back to the State Department uh, in early 1946. And then there was the X article, uh, which was sort of a public version of the long telegram that he published under a pseudonym in foreign affairs in the middle of 1947. And the argument that Kennan made was essentially that the nature of the Soviet regime, plus the history of Russian insecurity and expansion, plus the paranoia of Stalin himself, made the Soviet Union basically incapable of lasting compromise with the capitalist world. It was essentially committed to the destruction of the capitalist world, even though it wasn't in a hurry to accomplish that goal. And so it was that combination of insights that led Kennan to suggest the notion of containment. And containment was seen as an alternative to uh, appeasement of the sort that had been tried vis-a-vis Hitler in the mid and late 1930s. It was also, however, seen as an alternative to fighting a war. Uh, and so Kennan's argument was essentially that when dealing with uh, an aggressive dictator like Stalin, it didn't have to be entirely one thing or another. If you pursued a patient policy like containment and essentially prevented the Soviet Union from establishing geopolitical and ideological hegemony over the world, then eventually the, the internal weaknesses in the system would take their toll and, and lead to, as he put it, a mellowing or a breakup of Soviet power. And so that, that was really the background that Kennan brought to uh, containment. Now, just briefly, I'll mention, you know, Kennan was not the only person involved in the creation of a containment policy in the late 1940s. Far from it. There were other folks like Dean Acheson, who would play a very important role as Secretary of State, President Truman himself, uh, James Forrestal, who was the nation's first secretary of defense, uh, and a variety of other folks. And for those people, I would say that World War II may have been the formative experience, formative in the sense that it convinced them that the United States could not allow a hostile power to dominate Eurasia or large chunks of it without endangering the security of the United States itself, and formative in the sense that a lesson they took away was that you needed to stand up to aggressive foreign powers sooner rather than later. That if you gave someone like Stalin uh, an inch, he would eventually take a mile. And I think if you put all those things together, that starts to give you the intellectual foundation for containment as it would emerge in a lot of the specific policies that the Truman administration and its successors put together. Let's talk about the successor strategy for a second. What was it about containment in particular that allowed it, you know, that gave it so much staying power that it was essentially, you know, used in different ways by different administrations pretty much through the to the end of the Cold War? Well, part of it was that the key premise of containment was that time was on America's side, that uh, the Soviet Union was aggressive, but it wasn't insane or or totally reckless. And so uh, Stalin, for instance, would back down when confronted by superior power. And so that was a really key insight from the perspective of forging a strategy that was patient, that, that didn't have to achieve victory in five or 10 years, but could basically be held in place until the threat dissipated. But the other part of it was that containment was was actually a very uh, the nice way uh, of putting it would, would be to say it was malleable. The sort of uh, meaner way of saying it would be that it was exceedingly vague in the way that, that Kennan initially framed it. And so if you go back and you read the long telegram or the X article and you're looking for detailed policy prescriptions about what containment meant in practice, where the United States should primarily focus on checking Soviet power, what methods it should use to do so, 
you're going to be really disappointed, really disappointed. Those two, those two um, writings were mostly diagnostic. They were about the threat that the United States faced, and they were very, very broad when it came to describing what a containment policy looked like. But in retrospect, that was really a blessing because it meant that while the underlying logic of containment stayed largely in place during the Cold War, it wasn't immune to challenge, but it stayed largely in place the specifics could be sort of renegotiated over time. And so, uh, you know, the question of what was the decisive theater in the Cold War, what might get different answers in 1949 or 1965 or 1981. Um, The question of how much military power the United States needed to hold containment in place got very different answers over the course of the Cold War. Different presidents took different approaches to nuclear strategy. And that was important because the world changed, uh, even as the Cold War uh, endured. And it was also important because it it allowed containment to uh, sort of sit comfortably within the American political system, where we expect that policies will change uh, to a certain extent when one president leaves office and another takes power. Now, if, if you're a policymaker today, what, what sort of lessons would you try to take away from from the at least the origins of containment and its execution throughout the Cold War? Well, one lesson I think we're living right now uh, is that it takes time for successful strategies to come together. I think uh, I say we're living it right now because the last two American presidents, uh, one Republican, Donald Trump, one Democrat, Joe Biden, have agreed uh, that the United States needs to move into a more competitive policy vis-a-vis China and that the responsible stakeholder in the engagement policy essentially failed to achieve its objectives. So there does seem to be sort of very high level agreement that the United States is moving into a period of enduring competition with China. I don't think anyone would claim that the United States has wholly sorted out what its strategy is going to be. There are still debates over what the United States should be trying to achieve over the long term vis-a-vis China, there are still big question marks about what role trade policy will play in a strategy of competition vis-a-vis China. Uh, and we could add a number of other uncertainties and questions to that list. That, that's actually relatively normal. It took the United States you know, a handful of years, if not more, to get sort of bipartisan acceptance of containment as a long-term strategy. And what containment meant in practice was never really settled throughout the Cold War. And so that's one lesson or one insight that I think the the past can provide. A second one is that any strategy of competition has to be tailored to reflect the nature of the opponent in question. And that that may seem obvious, but I think it's actually very important. I think the fundamental insight that Kennan came up with during the Cold War, which the remainder of the competition subsequently proved was that it was essentially the nature of the Soviet regime that stood in the way of productive U.S.-Soviet relations. Or or perhaps better put, it was the clash between the nature of the Soviet regime and the the nature of sort of the American conception of world order. And I think we're we're in a debate right now vis-a-vis China over whether that, that sort of diagnosis is once again Appropriate. I've argued in a variety of places that I think the the nature of the Chinese regime is actually critical to understanding the threat that China poses, and to understanding how protracted this competition is likely to be. Uh, other people disagree with that, but I think what what I would go back to and sort of looking for a Cold War lesson is that unless your strategy is based in, in a pretty strong appreciation. Of, of what the nature of the competitor's regime is and how that, that, that regime influences the competitor's approach to the rivalry, you, you risk being disappointed or you risk choosing a strategy that's suboptimal. You just mentioned there that the Trump administration definitely recognized China and growing competition with China as somewhat of an existential crisis. And that was sort of played out in certain policy documents at the beginning of the administration, being the one being the national security strategy authored by H.R. McMaster and the other being uh, Secretary Mattis's uh, national defense strategy. I was wondering, you know, you you talk about in some of the book creating situations of strength. And while the Trump administration recognized the threat posed by China, it necessarily, in in your view at least, didn't sort of execute as well as the U.S. did 
at least in the beginning of the Cold War, in creating situations of strength and using alliances. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. I would say that the Trump administration's record on China in particular was muddled. Uh, And so there were certain areas where the administration mustered a fair amount of clarity. Uh, And so the the strategy documents that you mentioned, uh, some other documents put out by the State Department and other folks uh, later in the administration, were more forthright in declaring China to be a strategic competitor of the United States than I think any comparable strategy documents during the post-Cold War period. And I think that was an important contribution because you can't start solving a problem unless you first admit that a problem exists. And so simply admitting that the American theory of success vis-a-vis China during the post-Cold War era, which was basically that by drawing China into the existing liberal international order, we would change China's behavior and perhaps its political complexion over time, admitting that that theory of success had had not uh, been borne out, I think was an important move in the right direction. I think the, there were also some other important moves in the right direction. And so the, the Trump administration started to put together constructive strategies for technological competition and in terms of some of the things it did vis-a-vis Huawei, uh, for instance. Uh, I think it started moving the Department of Defense uh, in the right direction. I think it started to do things like reorienting the intelligence community towards threat for, threats from China and Russia, uh, as opposed to sort of the, the 15 years of focus on counterterrorism that had come uh, before that. But it, it was muddled in a variety of respects. And so one was that the president himself, it was never entirely clear whether he actually agreed with the thesis that the United States was moving into a long-term competition with China. In fact, particularly through early 2020, he seemed more taken with a thesis that you would put a bunch of pressure on China as a way of getting some sort of grand bargain on trade that would then normalize the relationship. Uh, It was muddled in the sense that the president often seemed as interested in uh, picking fights on trade and other issues with American allies as he did uh, on uh, confronting China over its malicious behavior. Uh, He certainly didn't seem particularly interested in human rights issues in China and the ideological dimensions of the competition. And and then, of course, I think, and in fairness, this has been a bipartisan failing of American policy vis-a-vis China. He he never really answered the question of of what the economic components of a U.S.-China strategy uh, were meant to be. And so the the administration very quickly withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I think the Obama administration had conceived of as a, a way of checking Chinese economic influence in the Asia Pacific and never really replaced it with anything. The, the Biden administration has continued down that same path, unfortunately. And so you saw sort of the occasionally the glimmers of a, of a strategy uh, or the kernel of a strategy during the Trump administration, but there were a lot of questions that uh, were left unanswered. So one thing that you, one sort of notion that you dispel in the book is that the Cold War is often remembered as a, as a time of stability, but that really wasn't the case, especially in the military dimension. You write that the military balance mattered in reality precisely because it mattered in the minds of policymakers. I was wondering if you could talk about that. So really from the late 1940s onward, U.S. policymakers believe, uh, and I think they were correct to believe this, that even if there was not a hot war between the United States and the Soviet Union, and there was no guarantee that this would be the case. There were repeated war scares during the Cold War, particularly during the first 15 years of the Cold War. But but leaving that aside, even if there was not a hot war between the US and the Soviet Union, the military balance would still shape risk-taking and decision-making in peacetime competition. And just to give one example of this, if the Soviet Union thought that the military balance and particularly the nuclear balance favored it, then it might be more willing to instigate crises and take risks in hopes of achieving geopolitical gains. And in fact, Nikita Khrushchev did this in the late 1950s and early 1960s. He, he exploited the fact that the Soviet Union was making or appearing to make gains in uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles in particular to touch off a couple of very dangerous crises in Berlin and then uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Caribbean uh, as well. 
Or you could look at it from the perspective of American allies. And so by the early 1950s, it's clear that, that really the center of gravity in the Cold War, at least from America's perspective, is the loyalty of American allies. And so what the United States basically does is it sets up a containment ring around the Soviet bloc made up of U.S. military alliances. But, but, but of course, those allies are only going to stick with you if they think that you can actually defend them if war comes. And that was always a complex proposition because for most of the Cold War, the United States probably lacked the conventional military strength to defend, say, West Germany from a Soviet assault. And so it had to depend on threats of nuclear escalation, which presented problems of its own. And so this is all a long way of saying that calculations of the military balance, calculations of military advantage were central to Cold War strategy because the fear was that if you didn't have a credible deterrent, then you wouldn't be able to hold your allies on side. The other side would be able to coerce you and get concessions out of you, and the whole edifice of containment would fall apart. And so we look back on the Cold War as an era of relative stability, as as, as a long peace, as my mentor uh, John Gaddis put it. And, and in a certain way, that's true. The Cold War was defined by the absence of hot war between the leading powers in the international system. But it certainly didn't seem safe or stable to American policymakers during the Cold War. They, they felt that they had to continually make adjustments and investments to ensure that sort of the military shield of the free world remained intact. You make a very good case in the book for why aligning strategy with America's principles is not only a moral issue, but is sort of a requirement for good, effective U.S. policy. And I was wondering if, if you could talk about how the, the Cold War sort of revealed that theory. I don't want to take this argument too far. I think it's, you know, it's fairly evident to anyone who looks at the period that the United States had to make some pretty troubling, sometimes awful moral compromises to achieve its objectives during the Cold War. And those involved everything from supporting really nasty authoritarians who were anti-communists uh, in the third world, destabilizing unfriendly governments, a few of which were democratically elected, or you know, working with one set of communists to contain another. And so in the late 1940s, the Truman administration establishes uh, almost a quasi-alliance with Tito, the dictator of Yugoslavia, who was an enemy of Stalin, even though he was a communist. Uh, in the 1970s, of course, the Nixon administration does the opening to China, which results in a partnership with Mao and his successors. And it's, it's worth reminding ourselves that uh, Mao was one of the greatest mass murderers in history. And so getting our way in the Cold War, establishing a coalition of states that could balance Soviet power, sometimes meant working with some really, really unsavory characters. And, and so you, the United States would not have succeeded in the Cold War had it taken sort of a puritanical approach to geopolitics. At the same time, I think that the, the moral asymmetry in the Cold War was actually quite crucial. Uh, American policymakers, going back to Dean Acheson, understood that it wasn't a coincidence that America's closest allies were other liberal or relatively liberal democracies, because these were countries that shared not just geopolitical interests with us, they also shared political values with us. You know, it was very important as well that the United States was able to tap into the ideological enthusiasm of the populace to wage the Cold War. And so if you go back and you look at the speech that Harry Truman gave to Congress in March 1947, he's doing it with a specific purpose in mind. He's asking for about $400 million in aid for Greece and Turkey, which were then under communist pressure in one way or another. But the speech itself is very sweeping and ideologically stark. It talks about a conflict between two fundamentally different ways of life. It says that the United States uh, must make its policy to support free peoples who are under threat from subversion or coercion. And there was a reason for this. Truman understood that you couldn't get Americans fired up for a competition of any sort by simply talking about sort of obscure points on a map. You had to relate the 
the issue to the the democratic values and the support for self-determination that had informed America's role in World War II and that were really centrally rooted in American politics and America's approach to international affairs. And then I think the final reason that values were important was because they, they helped dramatize, not just for Americans, but for people elsewhere, uh, what was ultimately at stake in the Cold War and what the difference between the two sides was. And so, it, you know, it was sometimes easy to lose track of this in the 1960s or 1970s. But ultimately, there was a pretty fundamental moral asymmetry between the Soviet bloc and between what was known as the free world. And I think um, people like Ronald Reagan didn't forget that. And I think a lot of people within the Soviet bloc didn't actually forget that. And so high, highlighting the ideological dimensions of the Cold War, the values dimensions of the Cold War, was actually a way of waging political warfare against America's rival. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One, one part that you, that you mentioned there was when the Vietnam really sort of called into question America's, you know, moral spot in the world. And you talk about in the book how American officials really corrected problems after the Vietnam War. And that seems to be a recurring strength of the U.S. throughout the Cold War is this ability to have several mistakes happen and then go back and, and try to correct them and institute new policies. I was wondering if you could explore that idea a little bit. So the underlying idea is that nobody's going to get everything right in a long competition, especially one that lasts upwards of four decades. You're, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have policies that don't work out. You'll occasionally get yourself into strategic cul-de-sacs in the way that the United States did in Vietnam. And so the, the question is, how effectively can you recover? And so one of the arguments that I make is that the United States was actually better able to recover from mistakes than the Soviet Union was because uh, we have built-in course correction mechanisms in our political system that authoritarian or totalitarian systems often lack. And so if the United States had a president who wasn't faring well in foreign policy, that president could be replaced after four years. Uh, that wasn't the case in the Soviet Union. And, the way, and we could see that in the late 70s and early 1980s when it became clear that uh, Leonid Brezhnev had become essentially sort of a pathetic figure who was way past his prime and, and was no longer capable of exerting constructive leadership of Soviet foreign policy. But of course, he had to die before he was replaced. And then he was replaced by a couple of equally senescent rulers uh, who followed him. And so you can really see this, and this gets back to the, the guts of the question that you asked, and the way that the U.S. recovers from Vietnam. And so Viet Vietnam was really scarring for the United States. It was scarring geopolitically. It was scarring internally. And it really seemed to show that the United States was on its heels in the competition for influence in the third world in particular. And so after the Vietnam War, and this process takes about a decade, it's, it's a process that involves a lot of trial and error, three or four American presidents, beginning with Richard Nixon and really ending with Ronald Reagan, put together a very different American approach to the third world. And, and that approach involves limiting American liability by avoiding large-scale military interventions of the type that we had undertaken 
in Vietnam. There's nothing remotely like that for the remainder of the Cold War. And when military interventions seem to go bad in places like Lebanon in the early 1980s, the United States gets out pretty quickly. They also do things like putting pressure on overextended Soviet positions. And so one of the things that became clear by the late 70s and early 80s is that the Soviet Union appeared to have gotten all sorts of gains in the third world during the 1970s in places like Angola and Ethiopia, and then finally Afghanistan. But in doing so, it had invested in the survival of some pretty loathsome regimes that were widely hated by the populations of these countries, and so had made itself vulnerable, most prominently in Afghanistan, to anti-communist insurgencies. And so one of the most effective American policies that starts under Jimmy Carter and then really picks up under Ronald Reagan is making the Soviets pay for that overextension by supporting those insurgencies. You cover the rise of the U.S. intelligence agencies from starting really from the National Security Act of 1947, I think, if I have that exact date correct. What were what were some of the challenges that the U.S. faced in developing an intelligence apparatus dedicated to studying the Soviet Union, this notoriously closed society? There were a bunch of challenges, and you allude to one of them, which was simply that the Soviet Union was a very hard intelligence target, particularly during the Stalin years. It was mostly impenetrable to foreigners. It had really well-developed security mechanisms, not just for keeping out spies, but for you know, preventing Soviet citizens from talking even to, to foreigners. Uh, and so figuring out how to develop some degree of expertise on what in many ways was the ultimate intelligence hard target was was very difficult. There was another challenge, though, which was just that there was a certain resistance to the idea that a democratic society like the United States should have a standing, uh, well-developed intelligence apparatus outside of major war. This, again, was really the first time that the United States had done something like this. This is why the National Security Act of 1947, which you mentioned, which created not just the CIA, but also the National Security Council and a bunch of other things that become central to the national security state is so important. Uh, and so over the course of the Cold War, the United States has ongoing debates about what is the proper level of transparency? What is the proper level of oversight for an intelligence agency in a democratic society? And as was the case with containment writ large, the country provides different answers to those questions over time. And so the CIA has a lot of autonomy in the late 1940s and 1950s. By the early 1970s, some of that autonomy is getting stripped away because of revelations of things that the CIA had done at the behest of American presidents that were seen to contravene American moral values. So engaging in assassination plots against Fidel Castro and other hostile rulers and regimes, uh, for instance. And so this is an ongoing conversation in the United States over the course of the, the Cold War. I would argue that the United States actually did better than is sometimes uh, believed in understanding the enemy during the Cold War. There's been a lot of discussion about things the CIA got wrong, particularly with respect to overestimating Soviet economic performance and perhaps not precisely predicting the, the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think a lot of those critiques are actually overdrawn. I think the CIA had a very good sense of the accumulating problems in the Soviet economy and society, even from the late 1960s onward. And I think the CIA's reporting on the coming collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990 and 1991 is actually pretty good, given all of the uncertainty around those events. That That's a bigger debate, which I'm happy to go into. But overall, the argument I would make is that America actually did pretty well in terms of reconciling a democratic form of government with the needs of effective intelligence and long-term competition. And one thing that was sort of key to that reconciliation that you're talking about there is sort of the parallel rise in academic Sovietology that begins during the Cold War. I was wondering if you could sort of talk about the rise of, of Sovietology. So Sovietology is interesting because it's a whole academic field that springs up more or less for geopolitical purposes. And so at, at the end of World War II, the United States really just didn't have a lot of academic expertise on the Soviet Union. We're talking about maybe a few dozen individuals who studied the Soviet Union in any depth. And so the United States makes 
generational investments uh, in developing a cadre of civilian intellectuals who can contribute to the country's understanding of the, the country that is its rival. And so this involved funding from the federal government. It involved funding from private foundations. It involved relatively close, sometimes uncomfortably close partnerships between the CIA and American universities. Uh, it involved a lot of academics going back and forth between uh, the academic world and the world of government or governmental consulting. Uh, and it basically created over time a, a pretty rich body of American knowledge on the Soviet Union. Now, again, sort of how effective academic Sovietology was in understanding the Soviet Union is a subject of some debate. There's some work that looks very bad uh, in hindsight, that, that looks very naive on things like the durability of the Soviet system or even sort of the nature of Soviet rule. But uh, if you look back, I, I think the United States had a much better understanding of the Soviet Union and sort of a much richer overall body of knowledge for having academic Sovietology. And so there were really good, insightful debates uh, in the world of academic Sovietology on the problems within the Soviet economy in the 1970s and the early 1980s. There were interesting debates between government and institutions like the Rand Corporation over how much the Soviets were spending on defense and how much of a burden that posed for the Soviet economy and the Soviet system. There, there was a lot of good work that came from demographers, for instance, that revealed how advanced the crisis of the Soviet system was as early as the late 1970s and early 1980s. And so if, if the question that, or I guess if the problem that academic Sovietology was meant to solve was to give the United States a better understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of its opponent in the Cold War, then I, I think it mostly passed that test. When thinking about today in, in U.S. academia in terms of studying China, we find ourselves in somewhat of a different situation with, I know, you know, I personally have a number of friends who studied abroad in China, which is something that probably wouldn't have been done in the early Cold War. Where do you think sort of the U.S. strengths and weaknesses are vis-a-vis -vis its academic study of China at the moment? So I, I think we're in a much better position vis-a-vis -vis China than we were at the outset of the Cold War vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. There, There are, you know, as you mentioned, there are pretty robust bodies of academic knowledge uh, about China. There are a couple generations of academics who were able to study in China, to do research in China, to have access to that society uh, in a way that was never really possible in the Soviet Union, say in the 1930s, 1940s, even the 1950s. And, and so I think in, in that respect, we're starting from a better place now than we did during the Cold War. I don't think there's anyone, though, who really thinks that the body, the overall body of knowledge we have on China, academic, governmental, and otherwise, is sufficient to, to meet our purposes in this competition. I think it's, it's become more and more difficult over time to assess the strategic intentions of the Chinese regime as that regime has become more and more closed off, you know, not just from American observers, but from Chinese observers as well. I think it's likely that it will be harder and harder for American academics to visit China over time. And so the knowledge that a lot of American academics have of China right now is, is going to be a little bit of a wasting asset uh, in years to come. And, and we have found, at least it's been reported in the press, that the Chinese government, the Chinese regime is very difficult to penetrate through traditional intelligent sources. Uh, and so I was uh, speaking with uh, Michael Morell, who's formerly the acting director of the CIA a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was of the opinion that we're not anywhere near where we need to be vis-a-vis -vis Russia or China, but China uh, in particular. And unfortunately, I think that judgment is probably correct. So I want to move to to more the structure of the U.S. government and how that changed throughout the Cold War. And one myth that you dispel is sort of the rise of the imperial presidency. It definitely rose, but, you know, it's sort of common, a common myth that you hear is that, oh, the U.S. bureaucracy just expanded and ballooned and the authority of the president was continually growing throughout the Cold War. And it was sort of this linear trajectory. But you, you cite some of the give and take that really happened in presidential authority during the Cold War. And 
you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard not to compare it to the current moment as, you know, sort of the global war on terror has taken on a new shape. And after the withdrawal of Afghanistan, there's continued debate about presidential war powers. What can we learn from that Cold War experience? Well, the growth of presidential power during the Cold War is real, and it grows out of the growth of presidential power during World War II. And so if you were simply to compare the American presidency, say, in the early 1960s to the American presidency in the 1930s or the 1880s or or whenever the prior point in American history might be, it was a much strengthened institution. And this makes sense. I mean, the, the founders of the American Republic understood that power would accrue to the executive during times of war, times of international crisis. And of course, the Cold War is basically one long national security uh, emergency. And so if you look at, for instance, um, you know, simply the power to unleash nuclear war on relatively short notice, presumably without doing a lot of consultation with Congress beforehand, that was an example of sort of the, the really awesome power that seemed to inhere in the American presidency during the Cold War that, that made a lot of critics of the so-called imperial presidency nervous. But the argument that I try to make is that it's it's not just uh, a story of linear accumulation of power, as, as you put it, that you know modes of congressional input into foreign policy decision uh, making may have changed, but they didn't go away. And so because presidents like Dwight Eisenhower, for instance, understood that there might not be time to go to Congress for a declaration of war in a crisis, they sometimes asked for forms of authorization beforehand. And so that was what Eisenhower did in the Taiwan Strait crises of the 1950s. It was what he did with reference to the Middle East in in 1957, essentially asking Congress for uh, pre-hoc delegations of authority to use force in defense of American interests in certain situations. And so it's, it's not really a clear-cut case of Congress giving away power and the president grabbing it. It's a little bit more ambiguous. And in fact, the, the ebb and flow of congressional executive power over the course of the Cold War is quite substantial. And so in the 1950s, it may have seemed like power was flowing to the executive, By the 1970s, Congress was certainly ascendant, and it was the despair of people like Henry Kissinger that Congress would thwart American covert interventions in places like uh, Angola and hack away at military spending at a time when Kissinger worried that the strategic balance was becoming quite precarious. And of course, there were angry battles over the extent of presidential and executive power during the 1980s, culminating in things like the Iran-Contra scandal. And so we should see sort of the battles over influence as, as part of a more ambiguous situation. And, and sort of the imperial presidency uh, model doesn't really get us that far in understanding it. I, I think we're, we're likely to see something similar today. And so on, on the one hand, uh, the United States is, again, gearing up for extended competitions with authoritarian rivals. And so if we're thinking about something like a Taiwan contingency, for instance, it may be that President Biden or whoever comes after President Biden will be forced to make a decision regarding the use of force in the Western Pacific very quickly without time for a declaration of war or anything of of that nature. That, That doesn't mean that congressional input is going to go away. It probably means that we'll have debates over how to ensure that Congress has a meaningful voice uh, on these issues. And so some people have argued that we need uh, a Taiwan uh, AUMF authorization for the use of military force beforehand so that Congress has a chance to weigh in on these issues without the president having his or her hands tied uh, in a crisis. Other people think that's a bad idea. But but the point here is that I think we're likely to sort of negotiate uh, within our political system how we will reconcile democratic procedures with the need for speed and, and dispatch in a crisis, just as we did during the Cold War. You have an article out in, in Foreign Affairs, a new article, and you talk about strategic overreach and the, the current position that the U.S. finds itself in. I was wondering if you could explain what strategic overreach is. The basic argument is that we have more problems than we have resources at the moment. And, and that's always a challenge for a global superpower. I mean, it's kind of in the nature of being a global superpower that you're going to be in real trouble if all of your problems or all of your 
rivals threaten you at, at once. There's never quite enough to go around. But, but the question is sort of how big is the gap between your commitments and your capabilities? And the piece essentially makes the point that the gap between our commitments and capabilities has been growing over the past 10 to 15 years. And it's becoming particularly problematic in the context of geopolitical competition. And so the, the fact of the matter now is that the United States doesn't face just one great power rival, it faces two. Uh, and there is, I think, a continual temptation because the China challenge is greater than the Russia challenge to try to sort of put the Russia challenge on ice uh, so that we can focus on China. But whenever we do that, Vladimir Putin has a way of reminding us that China isn't the only great power rival we need to worry about. And so the argument in the piece is that it's not simply a problem that if Russia and China were to provoke crises at the same time, we wouldn't have the resources to deal with that. It's, it's that the position we find ourselves in today undermines our diplomatic leverage in peacetime as, as well. And so I think the United States is going to face fairly fundamental decisions in the future as to whether it actually wants to retrench and sort of sacrifice important interests in places like the Middle East or maybe in Eastern Europe to focus on China? Does it want to increase the, the amount of military resources it has at its disposal to give it greater coverage uh, across a variety of threats? But I think we're coming closer and closer to having to make a more fundamental choice on that issue rather than simply skirting the matter. So given that setup for where the U.S. currently finds itself, I was wondering, I want to try a little experiment here. I was wondering if you could present to the Biden administration's National Security Council, what lessons would you want them to take away from this book and from the Cold War at large? I think there are a number. I mean, I guess I'll try to hit a couple that I think might be particularly useful given the challenges that the, the administration faces today. And so one, I guess, would have to do with the relationship between uh, competition and cooperation, between competition and diplomacy. And this is obviously going to be very important uh, in the U.S.-China relationship in the coming years. There seems to be a pretty strong consensus within the Biden administration, within the U.S. political scene writ large, that China is a strategic competitor. At the same time, the Biden administration clearly would like to have greater cooperation uh, from China on issues like climate change, uh, maybe on pandemic prevention and response, although I think that's more doubtful, perhaps on issues like nuclear nonproliferation. And so I think the question is sort of how do you reconcile these things or, or can you reconcile these things. And I think the lesson that the Cold War teaches us is that diplomacy uh, works can work fairly well. It can serve important purposes when it is really integrated into a comprehensive approach to competition. It doesn't work so well when you think of it as an alternative to competition. And so the idea that uh, we might be able to improve the overall relationship with China by cooperating with it on climate or other issues. I think that was a thesis that the Obama administration sometimes uh, tried to test, and I don't think it worked out particularly well. If you look back at the Cold War, I think diplomacy did serve some useful purposes for the United States, though. And one of them was sort of isolating areas where the two superpowers had a common interest even as they continued to compete in other areas. And so the best example of this would be the Non-Proliferation Treaty signed in 1968. So even as the Soviet Union and the United States continue to compete in a variety of areas, they basically say, okay, we're going to cooperate to limit the spread of nuclear weapons to other countries because neither of us really wants to live uh, in a world where nuclear anarchy prevails. A second uh, use of diplomacy, I guess, might have been tamping down tensions at the margins. Uh, and so I think the United States did fairly well when it you know, concluded arms control agreements or uh, diplomatic agreements like, say, the neutralization of Austria uh, in the 1950s that weren't really meant to transcend the U.S.-Soviet competition or bring an end to it, but were simply meant to decrease the dangers that things could get out of control. And, and so negotiation in that sense became a way of making the world safe for competition. And then the third way in which diplomacy helped the United States was in kind of maintaining a, a tolerable pace 
throughout the Cold War. And so there were times when the United States basically winded itself by running too hard uh, in the competition. And you mentioned Vietnam earlier. That's that's obviously the best example of this. And so if you look at the Nixon administration's initial strategy of detente with the Soviet Union in the late 60s and early 1970s, I think the goal was basically to give the United States a strategic breather, to turn down the intensity of the Cold War in the third world, in the strategic arms race, uh, and in other places, so that the United States could recover uh, until it was better able to, to run at top speed again. And so those were three important uses of diplomacy. Uh, none of them were premised on the idea that you could fundamentally change the nature of the U.S.-Soviet relationship through diplomacy. They were premised instead on the idea that it was possible to isolate areas of cooperation and even to use diplomacy and negotiation as a way of improving America's competitive prospects in the Cold War. And so that's the lesson I think I would hold up for the Biden administration or its successor today. My last question for you is premised on the U.S.'s greatest strength during the Cold War, at least as I saw it in the book, which is the U.S.'s democratic system, which a lot of people now say is under threat. I'm wondering if if there was really any analogous moment in the Cold War to sort of what we're seeing now with the what some have described as the you know assault on democracy in the U.S. domestically and globally writ large. So I want to be very clear about this point. I think that the U.S. domestic situation today is deeply troubling uh, in a lot of respects. And I certainly am not as confident in the future of American democracy as I would like to be. I think, though, that one of the advantages of being a historian is it gives you a little bit of perspective on some of these contemporary debates. And so the U.S. domestic situation now isn't great. Is it worse than it was, say, in 1969, when there were several hundred bombings in the United States in the course of a single year? Is it worse than it was you know, in the 1930s? I, I don't think the answer is, is yes. I think we've faced real severe domestic challenges in the past. Is it worse than it was during sort of the peak of Joe McCarthy's influence in the early 1950s? That was a pretty ugly period as as well. And so one point I think that, that history reminds us of is that our troubles may be great, but they are not unprecedented. And there has been significant resilience in the American system before. The second point I would make, though, is that competition can actually be good for democracy. This was a point that George Kennan made in the X article in 1947, where he basically said that one of the virtues of the Cold War is that it will force us to assume the responsibilities and do the things that we ought to do in any event. And in fact, uh, while there were some pretty nasty aspects of Cold War politics uh, in the United States, I would argue that America actually came out of the Cold War with a richer and more vibrant democracy because it waged the Cold War. The Cold War gave us an incentive to invest in ourselves, to reform our own democracy, to make us a more attractive model to people around the world. And so the, the Cold War really helped create the American university system that we have today. Uh, it helped create the interstate highway system that we have today. Uh, it even played a role in things like desegregation in the late 1950s and early 1960s. What really pushed the federal government to get serious about breaking down segregation in the South was the understanding that this was just an intolerable moral stain on the United States at a time when it was competing for influence uh, in the third world. And so that certainly wasn't the only factor that led to the end of segregation, but it was a very important one. And so if you look at these examples, if you look at some other ones, I think the Cold War actually had constructive domestic effects. It, it pushed us to become a better version of ourselves. And so my hope is that we can use our existing crises, our existing competitions to push ourselves in a similar direction today. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, and t-shirts. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 